She's Julie Roxanne. And he's Alistair. And And this this is Far Out. A podcast about stepping off the beaten path and learning to live from our center. I, I know personally I have quite a problem with letting go and I think grief quite a bit is a process of of really, of truly letting something go. You guys are some some badass interviewers. (laughs) (laughs) I had the life that I dreamed of. I had, you know, this house with in-ground pool. I was a single mom, and and it was a fucking burden, Mm. to be honest Mm. with you. You know, I never want to have to clean leaves from a... (laughs) Off the roof thing, whatever you have to do. I, in your I life do that for my dad every year. <laughs> this goal of millions of dollars of selling these textbooks that I didn't believe in. My kids were unschooled, so why? How am I selling textbooks for these kids to be carrying around? Every- <laughs> Well, hello, beautiful people, and welcome to a brand new episode of the Far Out Podcast. Well, welcome. It's great to have you as always. It is great to have you, especially for such a treat of a conversation or a thought-provoking conversation. We are talking to Blanche Colson today, and we are talking about death. Yep. That sounds fun. We are talking about <laughs> death and... I think we just lost all our listeners. <laughs> no, it is, it is a crucial conversation to be having. We talk about reinventing death. We talk about the way we handle or not handle grief as a society. And we talk about many more things. The power Funerals, of ritual. The power of ritual and the importance of rites of passage. It's a fascinating conversation and we hope you enjoy it. Let's get into it. Let's get into it. Good morning, good morning, good morning. Good morning, Alistair, and hello, everyone. Thank you so much for being here. We have a special one for you today. Yes, we do. We are talking to Blanche Colson today. Blanche is an incredible woman. She is training to be a death celebrant. She is 67. She's an African-American woman. She told us she was raised poor in in the city of Detroit, Michigan. She loves curiosity and she's all about wonderlusting. She raised two children, now adults, as a single mother in a pretty unconventional and alternative way of living. She unschooled them, which I got to say I love. And she currently lives in an intentional community on Staten Island, New York. Without further ado... Blanche, welcome to the Far Out Podcast. Welcome. Thank you for having me. We're so excited to have you. It's uh, We came upon you in a very strange way, but we basically heard that there was this wonderful woman who was uh, very much into talking about death. And we figured, oh, we have to have her on the podcast. That definitely piqued our interest. <laughs> so uh, before we start, you wanted to share a poem with us, and I would love it if you could read it. I will. It's by Langston Hughes. It's called Dear Lovely Death. 
Dear lovely death, that taketh all things under wing, never to kill, only to change into some other thing, this suffering flesh, to make it either more or less, but not again the same. Dear lovely death, change is thy other name. Wow. Mm. And this is, I, I think this is a beautiful poem and you shared it with us a few days ago. And maybe could you speak a little bit to the significance of that for you? Yeah, I think that's my all-consuming purpose at this point is to help people to understand. Some people, we have all kinds of beliefs about death as it as it is, as, as we've been taught. Uh, it's something to avoid. It's, we have all kinds of cosmetics that make us look younger because the older you get and the closer you get to death. So there's all kinds of fear around death. And mm-hmm. I'm wanting to change my own experience. I want my death to be different than, for example, my mother's death. I want my funeral, or if you want to call it a funeral, my celebration to to be different than what I've been fed and told to do with my body. So it's a curious thing. I've even had people say to me, and I guess it depends on your religious beliefs, that there really is no death. And that's why I love this poem so much, because it is really just a change. Mm. Mm. I think whether you call it death or whether you call it change, us as human beings Mm -hmm. have a really hard time with it. Uh, (laughs) We struggle with change just as much, I think. Um, Recently, we actually just moved uh, apartments and... You know, having traveled and kind of vagabonded and and done all this for um, going on four years now, Mm. it shocks me how much it's how difficult it still is to move and just the change of it. Yeah. And you kind of got Julie Roxanne and I talking because when when we first met, you asked us, had we thought about death? Mm. And your answer, Julie Roxanne. I, I have quite a vision of what I would want okay, my, so you, my, I guess you thought my about a little death bit more celebration to be. The funny thing is that I had, I had thought about death, but more in like, a, I guess, in a stoic tradition or in a contemplative tradition where I thought about, you know, what that meant for, for life. But I hadn't thought about it so much as like, okay, well, logistically, like, how am I going to prepare for death? That was not a question I had considered very much. And that was a conversation that you've started to stoke with Julie Roxanne and I, and you sent over a few resources that we're going to mention on the show and we will put in the show notes so that uh, anyone else, there's a YouTube video, there's a, there's a movie and uh, there's also a Ted talk or I think, and these were really great resources that you shared and that helped us think about it. And there was some pretty shocking information. I'm thinking particularly now of the Ted talk you sent, which was about having, talking about death over dinner about kind of the state of things right mm. now as far as how we deal with death right now. And I was wondering if, if you might talk about that a little bit, why you see it as a problem. Well, statistics show that in 10 years, half of funeral homes will be out of business. Um, people are beginning to, well, one way, of course, is uh, through the social media, people are having funerals and 
celebrations. There's all kinds of resources that are available for how to do uh, a death funeral over, uh, over the internet. Mm. And so that in itself is an interesting transition. I've seen some places, I think on, uh, on the internet in Italy, they're doing like seven minute services uh, and drive through because of uh, the social distancing and mm. all of that's going on with the viruses. So that in itself has just really exploded. I'm not necessarily saying that's going to be the way of the future. I, I do suspect that it is. I mean, when you think about the cost to take a family of four from New York City to L.A. to bury someone, that, mm-hmm. that in itself even before the pandemic, it's, it's a, an extreme cost. The average funeral right now is between eight and $10,000 for an in-ground funeral. Hmm. I had are, no idea about that. Yes. I, I, I really didn't see that this, this was that costly. And mm-hmm. honestly, I, it, when we talked last time, I, got, I was reminded of we buried my grandfather over a year ago. And this was really the first funeral I ever attended. And I was pretty shocked because I think in my mind, I had this vision of there's the dirt and we dig the dirt and there's a hole in the dirt. And then we put a coffin in a body or whatever. And then, and then we fill up the hole. But what happened was we were in this really cemented cemetery and they opened a place that was all, all cement and 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 they put the coffin in in a hole basically in cement and and i just thought is the body the body will never decompose like i had no idea that 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 this was how we did it most of the time and it just felt ridiculous to some extent to be putting this really expensive wooden box uh in the ground for and and call that a burial and i just like talking to you has made me realize how ridiculous that is and as you said how expensive it can get yeah and the impact of the earth it's it's kind of like that old state uh saying he is it what is it about he with the most heat with the most toys wins or something like that so the more mm. um, elaborate your funeral thing is cost more money and so uh, there's a my mother is sad for me we were born and raised in in Detroit on welfare and just mm-hmm. recently in my grief process I wanted to go back and visit her her uh, funeral site and at that time black people were being buried in a different area and when I got there um, it was just a, a pole sticking up out of the ground. We did uh, manage to get the money, $3,000, whatever it cost to buy a, a casket back then. But we took that money and bought this casket, and uh, we didn't have the money to put the headstone on at that time. So mm. ugh, it's not, ugh, you know, not a, yeah. not a pretty picture. And yeah. it's costly in other ways, too, right? Because we were doing a little bit of research before this just about the environmental costs on it. Yes. And, and even just like if, if the family goes to LA to have a funeral, mm-hmm. there's a massive environmental mm-hmm. impact there because you have a bunch of people Take flying it. there. Yeah. Um, so besides the economic cost, but then 
uh, it seems like there's quite a bit of environmental cost in the way it's done with the chemicals that are used, the embalming fluids and all this, uh, which are toxic. And it just, and then that eventually seeps into the earth at some point. And, and then there's the whole fact that you're making a coffin that mm. really doesn't maybe need to be made or doesn't need to be made the way it is. Yeah. And it just, you know, like two kind of profound things struck me as I was thinking about this over the last couple of days is, well, you know, going back to that poem about change is one, it's like, even after we die, we try to have it be like permanent, like that it's not going to change. Like we yeah. put it, we put it in this cement place and then the coffin stays there and the body's kind of like almost preserved. And then that brought up the second thought, which is like, even after we die, we're stuffing our stuff full of poisons. Yeah. It's a little bit cynical, but it's just it kind of, it's funny. I guess sometimes you kind of look at what happens in death and maybe sometimes you can see what we're doing in life more clearly. Yeah. Yeah, because I think of something that I did not know, and, and I don't know how many people know this, because I feel like it's not a matter of, oh, I'm young, I haven't had the time to think about this. But I didn't know that basically we inject chemicals into corpses to make it look like there's still blood so that whenever whenever we do the open casket, it doesn't look like a cadaver or not as much of a cadaver. And it's kind of really disturbing to think this body... Like there's this, there's this spiritual process that happens. You, you, you're what, however belief, whatever belief we hold about death, something happens, there is life. And then all of a sudden there's this body that doesn't have life anymore. And then again, after that, instead of like a peaceful resting manner, we pump chemicals into the body so that it looks okay. And then we put it in a wooden box, like very expensive and shiny. And then we put it in the, in the, in cement and it stays like that until the chemicals end up like seeping into the groundwater. It's really disturbing. Yes, it really is. It really, and even the, you can get cremation done for one to $2,000 but again, the research is showing that environmentally it's impacting the planet. And so many people are deciding instead of even doing, most people think, oh, I'm going to be uh, cremated because mm. it's cheaper. Mm. But there is an environmental price. But there are, uh, what I'm excited about are green burials where people are put into the ground in a shroud. Mm. Some people opt to have a cardboard box. You can, you can order them online. And at the funeral service, whichever option, however you decide to do it, a lot of people are tending toward a, a three-day in-home funeral service where people come and, and visit and celebrate mm-hmm. and really send that person, that dead body off with a very loving, just a very lo- loving ceremony. And I think I sent you a link about one that's called, said uh, it was called going home or coming home. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's called so, Take Me Home, uh, Home yeah. Funeral and Dead Midwi- Midwifery yes. by Sacred Crossings. And we'll link it in, yes. the, in the show notes. And it was beautiful. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it gave me a really good yes. idea about what you were talking about. And man, what a difference that would be. Because I, yes. I also 
don't have a lot of funerals com- to compare it to. One I think of is my grandfather who died when I was 13. And we got, we went and saw the body, but it was for, you know, you went and saw the body for maybe mm-hmm. half an hour or mm-hmm. something. And I remember up to that point, it had not hit me that my grandfather had really died. Mm-hmm. Like I knew my parents were upset and like this. And then I remember going to see the body and like just broke down. Mm-hmm. And I I just, you know, you're talking about this like kind of three-day in-home ceremony. And I that would seem like better amount of time or kind of space to process that. I felt like it was such a right. flash. And then all of a sudden it was gone. And it was like so intense. Exactly. And therefore you have a bunch of people, live people running around with ungrieved loss. Mm. Because, again, the way that, that we handle them, um, I had an incident come up recently. Um, it's, I, I'm 67 and I cry about just about everything. But I didn't, know, I didn't know that there was this grief still inside of me. And my son, his dog escaped our backyard and, and ran out into the street and was hit by a car. And he came to me with his dog Charlie in his arms and he 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 was so sad and he cried and he said something to me like mom you know you're always talking to to me about being positive you know what what you know how can we save charlie mm-hmm. and um i didn't know what to do i had no idea and just recently in my training as a death celebrant i I realized that I could have, if I had known about rituals, we could have cut some locks from Charlie's, our, um, his hair and kept it as a memento. We could have built or dug a, a grave in, in our backyard and, and ritualized mm-hmm. his death or wrote, maybe I wrote a letter to him or put his favorite toys there. But I did what most of us know to do which is to run from it. Mm. And we were on our way for uh, out of town on a road trip. So we, we took the dog to, or the lady who actually um, hit Charlie came and took the dog to uh, the veterinarian. They just veterinarian and they disposed of, of Charlie, but we never grieved it. We never talked about Charlie again. In fact, I think I said something like, Oh, we'll just get you another dog when we come back. Mm. And that's probably one of the most damaging statements that you can say to a person who's had a loss. Oh, their suffering uh, has ended. So it's it's good that they've died. Mm. So we have a way of avoiding the loss. And and I think what what I'm learning as I'm going along, when there's loss, that what that means is that there's change. When my mother died. That meant her house was totally dismantled and we got rid of all her personal belongings. And that was not a place for us to visit again. Mm. But what it, for me, I went to smoking pot and, and drinking alcohol to push those feelings down. Mm-hmm. And so when we do it, when we began to do it different, some people believe, have religious beliefs. I, I, that's, uh, that's up to them. For me, I'm learning in ancient civilizations and um, years ago here, people would 
actually bathe the the body and with with oils and uh, do ceremonies with them, the actual family. And I'm learning as I'm learning about being a death celebrant that that's a very important process in saying goodbye to your loved ones and then being in the world differently than if if they do they just whisk them away the body away the funeral homes whisk the body away and then they do a, a funeral service where you can see them for 10 minutes in a very controlled and sterile environment mm. yeah yeah and i think something you said that really struck with me the first time we talked was this idea that our current rituals the, the the rituals that we do have now, the, the funerals that we do, are very grief avoidant. And yeah. it's so, like, I feel like as a culture, we do not understand grief. We do not understand yeah. the major importance of going through grief. And we don't understand the damages that are done as a society, as a whole, when we collectively, continuously push down grief. I think... I think I think we're seeing that right now. We're recording this early June and it's just early June of 2020 and it's been such a, an intense year so far and it just feels like all things that we've been trying to push down as if they didn't happen and we don't have to grieve them and we don't have to collectively face them they are resurfacing and I think it's this this shows up in the way we approach death and the death of loved ones is it's no longer, we don't have rituals that are holistic and that will help us as the people staying behind to deal with the fact that a loved one has just passed. And that's not even counting, you know, beliefs about what happens when you die. I, I was very interested to hear in the video that you shared with us, this Take Me Home video, where this woman, we see this three-day in uh, three in-home funeral. And this woman said that she wanted to have a funeral like that because she believes that this is how it how long it takes for the soul to leave the body. And I realized I don't have a lot of beliefs around that currently. I'm sure that will change in my life, but I just think it's fascinating the way this is not even something we can talk about. That death is so, it's, as you said, also, it's like the, the old people get taken to the hospice and, and, and we just like up, up, hide them, hide them to the yeah, side. So, yeah. We almost get started before death even happens. It's yeah. like, and you, you mentioned this earlier with cosmetics and, yes. and all the sorts of like, kind of a lot of the consumerism that we have is around being young. And then as you get older, we kind of shovel people away and, yeah. or, or we kind of put them in a, in a home or things like that. And I, I know you mentioned to us, I think there, you know, if I'm not mistaken, there was some surprise for you in in that kind of discovery uh, around kind of what we do with our with our elders these days i was shocked i moved from eugene oregon to new york to participate with 40 other people in a program called the zen center new york zen center for contemplative care and it was called foundations it was a nine month program and part of the program was to volunteer at a nursing home or in a facility some people were in hospitals some people were doing hospice work and and at first i was really upset because 
I felt like they were, I, I'm, I was la- asking for someone that I could shadow and really learn how to do it because of my own control issues. But we were kind of like put into that situation. And after a while, I realized that there, there really is no training. Mm. But part of my, I mean, I, I actually, each time, first I, I procrastinated going. Mm. And when I finally went, I could just sit there. All I did was sat there and judge, you know, mm. well, how could they just leave that person? These were people that were at end of life could have been bound to wheelchairs. And I was just appalled. And I was judging the staff and I was judging. It was just very sad for me that these people had this tremendous change in their lives. Most of them, their main cry was, I I just want to go home. Mm. In fact, uh, there's statistics that show that um, so many people want to die at home but a small only a small portion of of these people do that and that's another thing that uh is leading for me to say is if please people who are listening to this get your shit together on paper so that and it's different for mm-hmm. each state but you have to have an advanced directive before the ambulance come you have to have something because the medical profession there they're doing their job Mm. which is to save your life no matter what the quality of life is not something that they can decide probably legally but if you have a paper there that says do not resuscitate Mm. then you're not going to end up in some nursing facility you know with tubes stuck down your nose and having to have your diapers changed and that it, it just it was like, you know, in our culture, we sweep so much under the rug. Mm. And that portion, if you have money, it's somewhat different. But then the whole objective is you have to spend all your money to qualify for other services. So it just doesn't, you know, it, it, you, you have to take charge of your own life. Most people think, oh, I just need to do a, a will mm. about the personal belongings. But no, that's, that's minor mm. about your money. Mm. It's about you defining what your quality of life is. Yeah. And it's up to you. Yeah. And the statistics you were mentioning, I actually wrote it down because I was shocked too. And it was in the TED Talk you shared that'll be in our show notes. But I think the statistic you're referencing is that 75% of Americans want to yes. die at home only yet yes. only 25% of them do. Yes. And mm-hmm. actually my grandfather was one of those lucky 25%. He, and the story was kind of interesting. And I actually have a lot of respect for, for, for him and, and how tenacity. he did this. And yeah, his tenacity in it. But he, he lives in this beautiful house my, um, that my grandmother still lives in over a lake in Blagden, a small village in England. And uh, they have a gorgeous view of this lake. And he was getting worse and worse. And actually that morning they were going to take him into the hospital. And I guess he might have foreseen what was coming because he had a heart attack looking out over the lake mm-hmm. right before they were supposed to get in the car to go to the hospital and not took him out. And thank Respect. God, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Respect. Yeah. You mentioned, you mentioned that you are a death celebrant or that you're training to be a death death celebrant. And I wonder if for people who have never heard this term, how would you define it? It's a, de- it's a death doula. And if you know what a, a birth doula is, then it's the same 
process of being involved with the family and with the person before they die and after they die. So it's pretty much it's caretaking. The biggest lesson that I have to learn as a death celebrant, I realize, is not to feel like I have to rush in and and rescue them. Mm. If they're in pain, if they want to go home, I, I've always been interested in presence and developing that uh, part of my of myself. Mm-hmm. And for me, a large part of being with the dead or with the people who are dying is to just be present with them. And so, and it, isn't that isn't that? I mean, I think. That sounds really hard to do because we are so programmed to think yes. that we have to save people from their own <laughs> destiny and their own, you know, it, mm-hmm. it's, uh, yeah. How do you, how do you do that? How do you actually not try to fix, like, what are the practices that you, that you do to keep that, that innate desire to fix at bay? It's a practice. Mm. It's, it, I, when I was in the foundations program, we had mentors. Our mentors, there was two lovely persons who, um, who we could go to each, each month and have conferences. And they would always have my shit in my face. It's like, Blanche. It's not all about you. That was the biggest thing that <laughs> my <laughs> my mentor Toto would always remind me. Plans, <laughs> um, <laughs> and I just can remember times when I was at that facility, and there was a one example is this man is sitting on the toilet for over two hours, and so I finally, you know, I I went and I went to one of the attendants there, and I'm like. Can you take care of him? That we had restrictions on what we could do as volunteers. And I'm like, he's been sitting there. And the lady looked at me and she said, Lady, we'll get to it when we can get to it. <laughs> and it just really kind of put me in my place because here I am with all this judgment and like he's taking care of him. Mm. And he, he wasn't screaming, he was just sitting on the toilet. I think he was used to it. Mm. But what I, what I also learned from that was not to be so judgmental of the staff there. Mm-hmm. Many people there, they had over 10 people that they were caretaking. And some people were, had more serious needs than others. So they were always prioritizing. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like they were sitting around, you know, on their phones and avoiding their job. They, and I learned to think to myself, you know, Blanche, what if every day you got up and your job was to go to work. And what your work consisted of was changing diapers, lifting heavy bodies, addressing uh, wounds. Uh, it just, uh, I had learned a lot about putting myself in, 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 other, people's, in other people's shoes. Mm. And, and on the other hand, I learned by the time I finished with that program, well, the virus had, had come in in February. I started in September of last year. So visitation was cut. And so we, uh, I was not allowed to visit, but it taught me, it taught me the most valuable lesson, even through parenting. I learned how important service was Mm. and where to be able to give and not look for 
money for return. As money, sometimes it just kind of mires the whole the whole interaction. Mm. So I learned to to serve, and I know that's the key to to my happiness. Some people it takes them a lifetime; it takes them many lifetimes to to learn that. Mm. And some of the most valuable relationships I had, my, one of my favorite persons there, his mm. name was Paul. And he was, uh, at age 20, he lost his vision. And he also was paralyzed on the right side of his body. And he had, he had children, but he was, conf- he was paralyzed. So he's confined to this wheelchair. And um, I befriended Paul and... Oh, I call him Mr. Optimistic mm. because in spite of his circumstances his, with his family and his children and his life, he still has, he is more optimistic than people who have vision and who have, who have full use of, the, of their bodies. So those were the kinds of things that happened. I could talk forever. <laughs> but, yeah. Mr. Optimistic. That was my man. (laughs) (laughs) I I imagine the, uh, because I have a a heavy dose of the fix-it mentality as well. Mm. And I'm just thinking about, you know, talk about an environment that would really throw that in your face. Because what are you trying to fix? Like, at that point, to some degree, it's like, these are these are non-fixable problems. Like, Mm -hmm. some of the smaller things, like, you can help them go out better. And you, you can help in that transition. But you can't fix death, right? And that's probably that's staring you in the face, especially mm. when you're there. And that, so that fix it mentality is is in a in a way feels futile in that kind of environment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. It reminds me. I mean, I, I I can't help but to see the parallel. And it's funny because there's even the same term doula. But I'm. I am very, very into birth work and birth and the importance of that as a rite of passage. And I think you mentioned earlier that we we don't have the rituals. We lack the rituals around death. And I would say we just lack rituals, period. We just don't have the rituals and the understanding of the importance of a rite of passage in our lives. We just completely discard it. And we kind of give it up to a higher authority. You know, it's like, oh, I'm I'm pregnant. Well, all right. The, the the thing to do is to go seek medical uh, authority and and like make sure that they take care of everything. It's my life and it's my rite of passage. But I'm going to hand it off to this to this medical system. And I feel like, and this is not to shame anyone who does that. I'm just like I'm just trying to. Um, open a, a, a lane of thinking of maybe there it doesn't need to always be that way because i think if there are two things that the body knows how to do is give birth and die like we don't we don't need medical help to die like it, it's it, actually i think we need less medical help than we do now because the medical help we're getting around death is what's keeping us alive against the body's desires i remember my grandfather was telling me he wanted to die for years years before 
he finally passed away. And, and I could, I just felt so powerless because he was in this, he was in this facility, like this kind of hospice care where the goal was to keep them alive as long as possible. And it made no sense. He, he, he was so miserable and, and I could tell that he would have wanted to die earlier. And I just, this idea of the fix it mentality, it's why are we trying to fix the most basic human experiences? I think that's the, that's the core question that I'm asking myself because I see it happen in pregnancy and birth and I see it happen in death. And I just don't know why, why do you think we are trying to fix this bunch? Like what's your, what's your thinking <laughs> around this? It's like every, most everything is to, it's the cha-ching that's in it. Mm. It's the cha-ching. Mm. It's the, it's the money that uh, some nursing homes are allowed to, collect monthly and I, I I talked to a social worker when I was there and she talked to me about that that reality of of why I keep people alive it's all about in the money that you're, they're spending on drugs mm. to just to just maintain them well, one of my heroes is Jack Kevorkian and when I lived in Oregon it's not legal in all states but it was called death with dignity mm. But if, if you knew, like your grandpa, if he were living in this time and he had a, a terminal illness, you can go to a doctor and you have to go to two doctors and they can prescribe meds where you can, you have control of your death. Mm. So, and I've seen some very beautiful endings for people who, who didn't, who were tired of the pain and they just knew they had already been given predictions that they were going to die within weeks. Or I think you have to, yeah, you have to be, able, you have to die. I think as predicted, uh, maybe six months mm. or three months. You have to do the research on it. I'm not sure. But Jack Kevorkian was running around killing people because they, they were done. <laughs> they were done. It was so clear that they were done. Yeah. And he, he, you know, but he was put in jail. I think he died in jail. In jail oh, wow. Because there are those religious people who believe, they believe what they believe. They believe that he was killing people, but he was just helping them to fulfill mm. their desire at the end of their life. This is a bit Why of, not? This is a bit of a dogma for us, though. And I think what really yeah. struck me was when I heard Yuval Harari talk about this in one of his books. And mm -hmm. he mentioned, you know, Look at the Constitution. It's pursuit of life, liberty, or what? Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Yeah. yeah. And it's right there in the Constitution. It's like life. Mm. Uh, that okay. We have not put any boundaries around that. It's just life. Mm. And, you, and you see it and, yeah. and everything. What you're describing, Blanche, is just we... And I know the ethical decisions on the other side of this. We, we have friends who are involved in those and they're extraordinarily difficult, right? But we just haven't. And, and I think this is the, um, some, some of the points you're, you've made to us, Blanche, is we're not having the conversation. We're not even getting around the table to talk about how we make these hard decisions. Mm. We're just going with that kind of life at all costs. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it's costly. Yes. Well said. Yeah. Well said, Alistair. There's a book called, Let's talk about death over dinner. And it's this person, Michael Hebb, wrote the book. And he's another one of my heroes because what he's saying is 
those percentages that you gave earlier of people who don't die at home, who want to die at home, it's be, much of it has to do with because there has been no conversation about dying. Mm-hmm. And he's saying, hey, let's do, he has it all set up with the rituals. And this was before the pandemic, but it was all about hosting a dinner where you just talked about death. Yeah. And I've known people that say they have those dinners once a year and people look forward to them. Mm. I live in a community of 65 people, all kinds of a range of age. And I did one here and I wanted to cut it off at eight people because I wanted it to be intimate, but there were 16 people Mm. who, who came and, and you just get you just get the process started. Mm-hmm. I had like what eight questions I wanted to ask, and I got through one question. <laughs> people want to talk <laughs> honestly. People want to talk about death. They don't want to talk about it, but they know if you bring it up, I'm standing there for a half an hour listening to them talk about it. Yeah, and I think that's that's because that's because we're so starved for conversations around these yes. these mystery topics. You know, it's these things that for some reason are hidden. You know, in, in yeah. I, I keep thinking in movies, you never see someone really dying. You know, like you see the before when they're suffering, and you see when they're like closing the eyes and they're dead. But there's no, you don't see that liminal moment, that liminal period which is so important for our our psyche and i think it, this goes back to the whole fix it thing is there, there's something else here right like i think part of the fix it mentality and i'm just thinking about you and i and our relationship because i try to fix you all the time yeah right? of course yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, so that's something something I, i'm constantly working on um but is that but she's broke we all work around with these assumptions yeah, right? we, we, to some degree i think we can all relate with alistair's problem about trying to fix Charlie <laughs> roxanne and and but the thing is i think underneath that right is that there's an, a lack of willingness to just be with the suffering mm-hmm. of, of whatever it is and that that strikes me with this with what you're talking about it's like we are really a averse not only to change but to the suffering that comes with the mm-hmm. change right like that's what we really want to avoid and i think i think even beyond that there's just a general like i resonate with the word life mysteries and i know you've i've heard you say this uh, blanche i i just resonate with that because i see it in so many ways you know like what is more mysterious than growing a baby in your belly and like pushing it out what is more mysterious than women bleeding every month what is more you know like these things are super kind of dark and we don't understand them and 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 like same with death and it feels like because they're dark and we don't understand them we prefer not to look at them because god forbid that we don't have all the answers right like as as human beings we just want to have all the answers and so those things that we don't have answers to it's like, I'm going to choose to look away from it. And I think where I would like to bring this back is I I truly believe that having conversations around death and telling people how you would want to die and telling people how you would want to be, you know, like moved on to the next phase of, of this of this life where you don't have a body any, anymore and you move on. I, I think 
It's important for, as we've said, for like environmental reasons, for financial reasons. But the one psychological I reasons. yeah, the one I see the most is for psychological reasons. And you've briefly touched Spiritual. on the fact that you you felt like you could not grieve after the death of your mother. And and I think this might be a good a good point in the conversation to ask you like, can you tell us what drew you to this work? Because I feel like it's very unconventional it's very far out and a lot of people wouldn't think of doing this and i just what do you think drew you to doing this today spirit mm. it's really it's really totally out of my control it was not my dream job or my i i've lived my life and i know i'm in the final phase which i called the encore stage of my life And I knew when I retired in Eugene from the school district that I, I, had, I wasn't retiring from work. I was just leaving that. I was, re, I was going to reinvent myself, but I didn't know what it was going to be. And I have a festival business that I, I do as my own business during the summer. And I had a could have been, been near-death experience where I hit, uh, it was all my fault, but a, a, a truck hit me. And you'd have to see the picture of my truck. You couldn't, you wouldn't believe that I was able to walk away mm. without even going to a hospital. But it, it caused some kind of trauma and some kind of impact. And I don't know why. All of a sudden, I started being interested in death and I found this program in New York and I left where I was in, in Eugene. And now, now I'm at a point where anything about death and the afterlife and is really all consuming for me and, and the community I live. I think they see me coming and they kind of turn and walk the other way. <laughs> they know I'm going to start talking about death. I just want to talk about death. But it's beyond me. It really is beyond me. It's something that's, that's taken hold of me. And I was forewarned that Blanche, start looking at your life because you'll see changes in your, in your life when you start, when you approach death. And it's been so rich. Mm. Part of my uh, wanting to do this program is I want to appreciate my life while I'm alive. Mm. It's so easy to just shift into my people's addictions. I don't, my life is pretty simple, but to go shopping or to play Scrabble on the internet or whatever your, your addiction is, because it's avoiding, it's avoiding the, the true joy of life. And so that's why I, I'm, I did this and that's why I want to do this because I can't, I, I believe it's the ultimate and besides as, as well as the work that, that you're doing, Julie Roxanne of birthing, mm. that birthing process. And mine is, is helping people to, to, to leave the planet. And boy, is it rich. It's mm. beyond anything that I could buy with a dollar bill. Mm. Blanche, would you share a little bit about your experience when your mom left the planet and, and how, how that went? Because it sounds like that was formative in, in this later stage of your journey. Yeah. Um, again, I'm 67 and I can cry. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> but I, I never grieved her death. And my, my own children, my, especially my daughters, 
constantly in my face about my mom. Tell me about your, your grandmother. What was she like? Who was she? I think I have like one picture of her and she was like, um, just a jewel of a, of a person. She was, uh, and I, and I was close to her, but I didn't know that I was close to her. And I, when she died, she died of cancer. And back in the, the 70s, they were addressing cancer with chemotherapy and they were burning her body. And I would go visit her and I was helpless. I did everything I could to make sure that she was taken care of. And um, the, the night that she died, it was three o'clock in the morning and they called us and said, you better come to the hospital. And the staff at that time, was shushing us saying don't cry don't be loud because they didn't want to wake up other people because then that would have been more maybe possibly more work for them i have my own story about it but there was no place for the anguish of seeing your mother die and elizabeth kubler ross says that every hospital should have a screaming room a soundproof screaming room where people who who are there, who have, uh, who are experiencing a death, a dead one, can go in and just let out all of those emotions. But that that wasn't available to me, mm. and so. Um, but I remember driving home, or, or uh, at that time, my husband driving home, and it was by that time it was like five in the morning. And I could see the the sun coming up, and that was a symbolic something in my mind that she was in a good place and just to backtrack when she was dying she herself even though she was dying she talked about this tunnel and she talked about this light I knew nothing about it but I I, and so I just started drinking alcohol and and smoking uh, marijuana and and today right now I'm involved with with uh, here it is all these years later I was 27 then now I'm 67 so I'm doing grief recovery because I never touched that I never I never knew how to touch it and the beauty of of uh really dealing with that is that we all carry these losses around and until they're they're grieved and faced then they they're a burden and as we begin to, for me, what I'm found, like with Charlie, our dog's death, after I really faced it, then I became lighter. I became, there was something in my soul that had, had lightened up. Hmm. So it's no small wonder, again, that people have all these addictions that we're using to avoid the losses or dealing with the losses or, yeah, just going going there because we don't. That's not the culture. The culture is not take us to go there. This makes me think of, again, about what we were talking about rituals, because one of the ways I think about rituals and, you know, truly Roxanne, you're very interested in the ritual of, of, of birth and, and womanhood. And, and, you know, I'm also very interested in the, the rituals that young men never get. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that I felt personally that I've had no model for, like, how do you become a, a young man and uh, and I think there's a lot of problems associated with that in our society because men aren't shown how to be a useful part of the society or be kind of uh, a whole part of it mm. um but I think about 
ritual kind of is like this bridge, right? Like you're, there's the time before and then there's the time after and those are different worlds. Those are different places. There's the time before in your case, Blanche, where your mom is alive and then the time after where your mom is gone. And that's a very different world. And uh, the ritual is a bridge between those worlds. It, it helps us travel to that world. But I think it's also a bridge for parts of us to leave, right? Mm. Like it's the bridge for that part, you know, of maybe the spirit of your mom in some ways, not completely, but like to allow parts of it to, through ritual, to kind of leave or or to lighten. And and it strikes me that that word you use is, is an important one, that you felt light, you feel lighter uh, or that it, it, it kind of lightens things after having done the grief work because we are, we do allow, I, I know personally I have quite a problem with letting go and I think grief quite a bit is a process of, of really, of truly letting something go. Mm. You guys are some, some badass interviewers. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you, you listen well. You really do. Mm, thank thank you. you. I appreciate it. I, yeah, I just, I want to thank you for sharing that story because as I'm diving deeper and deeper into my own version of this, because honestly, I think what you do and what I do is just, it's a different face of the same mirror, or, you know, it's the two sides of the same portal. It is the same portal. It's the spirit realm that gets opened. This portal to the the spirit realm gets opened when you go and birth a baby and when a soul leaves a body, you know, like it's the same. I really think it's the same thing. And I think they're actually like, like traditions who believe that it takes about three days for the soul to get inside a baby's body after it's born, which is why you shouldn't cut the the cord of the the placenta Mm -hmm. and you should leave it attached for however long Mm -hmm. it takes for it to disattach itself. So it's, it's fascinating. And there's this idea basically that as we go through these rites of passage, through these becoming a mother, becoming a man, becoming a woman, dying, There's a before and after, and the after is often, like, regardless of what rite of passage you're talking about, even a birth is a death because you have to let the maiden, the the woman who wasn't a mother, die so that you can become a mother. And so there's always this, a part of rites of passage is always letting something else die. And I think one thing that fascinates me in this, and one of the reasons I think your work in the becoming a death celebrant is so crucial right now, because on the other side of that rite of passage, we are going to break apart. Like the people, for instance, if a parent or a loved one dies on the other side of that death, you have to grieve and you have to let go of, of who you were when that person was still alive. So there is your own mini death to go through. And if you don't have someone trusted, someone who you feel safe with and someone who can hold the space for your suffering, then you do not grieve. You shut down. And so I think it sounds like not only is this what happened, like you had no person like that in your own story with your mother. And I think it's really magical and beautiful that you are now becoming that person for other people to do that work and to grieve properly. That is so well said. Mm -hmm. That is so well said. I think, um, yeah, I I can't think of uh, the death, the death doula, the birth doula. You're, you're just, you're right on about, about what you have to say. 
about this. Another short comment has to do with preparation. And when you, when you prepare for your death, you really help your family. If you really love your family, writing your own eulogy can be a very rewarding experience. I mean, think about the number of people that don't do that. And so the family's sitting around trying to figure it out. But you can, that's another part of being a death celebrant is to help people choose a playlist that they'd like to have played at their funeral. Um, you know, there's a, a death box that you put aside uh, and, you, and you have all your paperwork in it. It's, you know, the, the, your celebration when you die can just be, and you saw the video that I sent you, it can just be just so heart connecting rather than just going into a church and looking at that, at that dead body. Mm-hmm. It can, and we have, I think for me, you know, we have this quote unquote new way of calling it uh, on most uh, eulogies. And when you go to a funeral, it'll say something like the celebration of the life, but we're still doing things the way we've, we've been doing them. And I just think that there is, there's, there can be a richness Mm. to really make it a celebration and to help that person really be able to be comfortable with with the person who who died i, th- I think if i had had something like that i would have had just a lot of of letting go <laughs> 3 days to mourn i just think i would have probably been a different person mm. Mm. yeah i really like that in Something that you just mentioned, Julie Roxanne, about, you know, I, I want to come back to this for a second because I feel like it's so important. Is like you're talking about how a ritual helps us die, right? Every ritual helps part of us die mm-hmm. or, or an identity die, right? Move into new identities. All change requires you, you let go or, or die to what, what is or what was to, be, to, to enter what is or whatever you're becoming. And, and I can't help but wonder if we were to, as a collective society, you know, face death in a different way in some of the ways, Blanche, that you are, are, are kind of pushing forward and, and celebrating, if we wouldn't give birth to, like, <laughs> it would almost be the, uh, one of the best services you could do for those still alive. Because it's, and, and I think you're, you've been saying just this, Blanche, so it's, this is not my idea, I think I'm just rehashing your own idea, your own ideas that you've been sharing with us here, but it would be the best thing we could do for our, for those that, that remain behind us. Mm-hmm. I, I also wonder, Blanche, and I'm going to take this a slightly different way because it was one of the things that intrigued me about your story when I first met you. I know that you kind of described yourself as a, a wanderluster and that you had quite a period of, and perhaps you, and I think you actually would say that you still are kind of in that period of wanderlust. And I don't know exactly how to tie this in, but I want to try because, because um, that's something we're very, uh, we're very interested in too. Was that period, like how how has that played into this journey for you? Has that been important? Did that help you kind of let go of a a previous life or, or get to where you are now? I mean, in some ways, yes, but I'm, I'm curious to hear how wanderlusting has played into your into your story. Thank you for asking that, because it, it is important. And uh, when I was 
I think I accomplished the um, American dream when I was 50. I, other energies were were coming into play. I had a, the home in Flossmoor, Illinois, in the suburbs, and I had the life that I dreamed of. I had you know this house with in-ground pool. I was a single mom, and, and it was a fucking burden, mm. to be honest <laughs> with you. You know, I never want to have to clean leaves from a... <laughs> Off the roof thing, whatever you have to do. I, in your I life do that for my dad every year. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like really. So, in so many ways, I ran from. I didn't know how to close it out properly, and so I. And it's a, a grief that I have because I did disrupt my children's lives, and we, we. I left that job. It was a six-figured income that I was. I was paying a price for it, but I knew that it was empty and i knew that no matter if i reached this this goal of millions of dollars of selling these textbooks that i didn't believe in my kids were unschooled so why how am i selling textbooks for these kids to be carrying around <laughs> every <laughs> six pound books on the back of the on their backpack i always hated I mean, that said, i always thought <laughs> yeah. it was inhumane oh, i love yes. big books <laughs> I don't like carrying I don't them. Like carrying That's what I'm saying. We I didn't like have lockers in, 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 my, in my school. Anyways, yeah. Yeah, it was just like so opposite of, of my own personal belief system. So I just threw my hands up and said, ah, this is, thank you, but this is just not for me. And so from, and when I was actually in, in the suburbs of Chicago, I uh, hosted a, a meeting in my home it was called Simple Abundance. So I had started on that path. I had begun to see, you know, this is, what is this for? Is this to show people that I'm success, that I've, it's successful, that I've arrived, that I can buy, you know, a $200 painting and put it on my wall and then worry about somebody breaking in my house and stealing it. So it took me, it took me a while to figure it out. Like, duh, uh, you know, the more you own, the more unsafe, uh, not unsafe, but uh, unfree I am. Mm. And the less I owned, the freer I got. So that's been my path. My path mm. has been to, when I arrived in, Chicago, in uh, New York nine months ago, I landed here with uh, a suitcase and I just, I'm aware of questioning myself now, you know, okay, so yeah, you want to buy that, but what's going to happen to it a month from now? How are you going to get rid of it? Is mm. it, you know, if it has a battery, where are they going to put it? How are they going to get rid of it? If it's plastic, where is the plastic going to go? So it's a certain consciousness and it's a certain freedom that I have, that I have friends who can barely leave their houses for a week's vacation because they're bound to that house. So, I mean, and it's opposite of what we're, the media tells us, you know, get that home, you know, get, get, get. That's the, yeah. yeah. That's and then the hang message, on to it, you know? hang on to it, hang on to it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it'll make you happy. It'll make yeah. you happy. And it, a new car will make you happy maybe for two months and you get that first payment. In the, and then all of a sudden they've created a new newer version of that car or so it's you know I, you know i've lived long enough to figure that game out to say Mm-mm, no thank you um so I, I like being a wanderlust because what it boils down to now we're in a, a period of not knowing we mm. most people just don't know because they don't know when they can get an airline ticket they don't know when they can make plans and so 
but I've, I, I'm more comfortable with it because that's just the lifestyle that I, that I've chosen for myself is, is the unknown. It's, it's a fear and I'm a highly controlling person, Mm -hmm. but a part of my lesson is, is to learn that things are not going to fulfill me for a very long time. And that the, the emptiness that, that comes is the, the way for me to feel that it has cost no money. It, it's serving. And sometimes it's not, it didn't mean that you got to go and, and work or volunteer in a, uh, in a facility. Sometimes it's just something simple like a smile mm-hmm. can make such a difference and it's free. Or, yeah, it's, you know, people will figure it out. But yeah, gotta, for me, I just have to question and question and tw- question is this true? Is mm. what I'm being told true? That's or not. That's really that's really beautiful, and I I can tell that this question of the de- I love that you use the word unknown as well. Um, that's a word that I'm very fascinated by too, and kind of directing my life to having a conversation or a dialogue with the un- with that unknown. And I can tell you know through talking to you that this question of of death and and everything it means, like you said, that it really you know, you mentioned it called you, I would, I would interpret that as like a kind of a soul calling as, as, as soul work, something, something that, that, that we, we have less choice in than, than we might like sometimes. But I, I can tell from hearing your story that you're living that question or uh, in, in a lot of different ways, like you're approaching it and facing it in your training to be a death celebrant and the work you're doing there. But my experience with being a wanderlust is that there are so many deaths along the way of identities. And it's just even as such a small thing as like saying goodbye to someone that you just had an intense bond with for less than a week or Mm -hmm. a day. There's so many changes and transitions, right? Nothing, perhaps that's, that's why it's often a later stage in, in spiritual journeys. Like, for example, it makes me think of the kind of traditional Hindu spiritual path, which is like you're a householder for the first half of your life. And then you start to let go of things and move into the forest. And you, and this is all in pre- preparation for the journey you're undertaking. And one thing, you know, you're, you're talking about things and, and, you know, things are distracting, right? They, like a lot of the stuff you were talking about, the house or the pool and, and these kind of things, they are ways to distract us. And I know one thing that you said that, that hasn't come up yet is that, the key for you is presence. And I can really see that in a lot of the different areas of your life. Like you're trying to be present with the suffering of others, with others at the end of this journey, with your own grief. And also you're trying to get rid of the things that block presence, that take us out of the moment and that don't allow us to be with these things. And so I, I wonder if you might speak a little bit about that, about this this idea of presence and and the importance in, of that, the role that's played in 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 your journey. Um, Eckhart Tolle was a. Uh, I used to have a weekly meetings in my in my home, and we would just watch his his video and uh, watch a video by him, and he was a, a great teacher for me. What I noticed, it was like I, people, so it was open, it was free, and people could come in from the community. And so I always wanted this period of time before we got started for just silence. And I realized how uncomfortable people were with silence and just 
stopping talking. And so I used to have to kind of uh, force it just to say, okay, now this is, we're going to take, you know, 10 minutes to just sit here and, and meditate or whatever. But Eckhart taught me a lot uh, about the, the key to my, and Ram Dass, and just, I have had so many spiritual teachers that have just come along to say, that's the, the key. I mean, there's no worry in the future. Mm-hmm. There's no, the only thing in the past is guilt because you can't go back and change it. So the only real true place for freedom and happiness is right now in this moment. And so I just, I mean, and the truth of the matter is I don't practice it w- enough. Just taking those moments to just stop and relax and just stop. I'm like all of us, I'm a doer. And that's why this pandemic has been such a spiritual gift. And so many realizations are coming about through stopping. It's just been phenomenal in that way. There's a price that's been paid. I'm not ignoring that at all. But I I believe personally that we are, you know, the headphones. I mean, look at where we were before this thing. You know, we were... You know, you couldn't find a person in New York if you, without headphones mm. on their head and out shopping and, you know, moving and going and doing. But there's just mm. so much, so much value in just stopping. And so, like I said, I'm not, I'm not no pro at it, believe me. But <laughs> I, you know, the times that I do take for my, for that, it's free and just taking a moment, even just a minute to just stop and be aware, take a look, take a smell, notice, look somebody in the eye for a change. Mm. Look them in the eye and see them. Someone at a, uh, at a, uh, who's working at a grocery store, just really stop and look them in the eye and say, thank you. It, it's so different for them. I mean, they're blown away. Most people are blown away when you just do something simple like mm. that. There's just so much fear in being present, right? Mm-hmm. It's like, and it, I'm trying to think like, what is so, what is so frightening? And I think it's everything. It's, oh, what if I'm just being and not doing? What is my worth if I'm not doing something? And if I'm just like sitting there meditating or will I get a message from, you know, spirit or God or the universe that I'm not really ready to hear or something else that came up for me when you were talking about getting rid, uh, like the, where you're going to buy a new car and then you're going to, feel happy for two for two months and then it's just going to fade away and you're going to have to buy something else to make that to fill that void and uh, I think it was Alistair that turned me on to this idea of like in this life we never own anything we're only ever renting and I think we just don't want to see that we don't want to admit that we're only here for a period of time and that most likely we're not going to do that much you know like we're not going to make the history books and thank god actually I'm happy I'm not gonna I'm, I'm, I would love to not make the history books because I don't the people in there are not the best but I, I think I think where I'm going with this is I would like to bring this back to this this idea of death. And I would like to ask our last question to you today, Blanche, which is in the circles I run in, uh, it's pretty common to have like pregnant women circles where every woman get to share their dream 
birth. Like mm. ideally, what would happen in their birth? And and it's and there's no oh that won't be able to happen or oh the rules are not applying. Like you can't do that. Blah blah blah. It's just about stating it for it to be present for everyone to hold. And I would love it if you would share with us your dream death. That's an interesting question, and I'm glad you asked it because I'm. At this point, I'm struggling with the notion that I just want to walk out into the woods and just lay down and just let the body decompose and and go back to to the earth and Mm. the animals eat it or whatever happens. That that would that was and is a lot of uh, people that I know have that same thought of. It's not, I'm gone, so why even make a big deal out of it? Mm. But now I am, I'm, I'm thinking it, it through, uh, because for me, I think some of that might have to do with self-esteem and feeling worthwhile and worth, like, I've, like I'm worth it. I'm worth it. I'm, I don't like to call attention to myself when I have birthdays. I don't want a big deal out of it. Uh, I just... Let it come and go. It's not a big deal. And so that's the same way I have I've thought about. That would, have, that would be the way that I would like to have it done. I de- definitely a green, nothing less than a green burial of putting me in the ground. Mm-hmm. But now that I'm learning about rituals, I think my ideal would be, and I don't even own a home, but to find somebody's home, somebody that would be willing to have a three-day vigil in their home for me like the one in uh, in the video that I that I sent you where my death and it would be a gift for them not so much for me my body will have was gone uh dead but for them to remember me and not to be afraid of of death to for me to be able to model that I didn't struggle with it that I opened my arms and I I received it with grace. That is, it's not a. It was. It's not a bad thing. I would really want them to remember Blanche Colson as someone who, yes, I guess, who just loved and cared deeply about others. And a part of that will have to do with how, what they do with my body. And not maybe it's a selfish act to think just burn me. I'm gone. It's done. It's over. And I'm. I'm th- rethinking that, Julie Roxanne. Hmm. Wow! Thank you so much for sharing mm-hmm. that. That yeah. is that gives a lot to think about. Yeah, and I, I want to thank you for sharing everything you shared today and prompting some questions for us. And maybe most of all, I want to thank you, Blanche, for the work that you're doing because I feel like you are doing it for us collectively. Mm. Uh, I think you're facing some areas that. As a society, we are we are really trying to avoid, and uh, I, I think what you're doing is transformative and and has the potential to to really help. Um, so, I just want to say thank you for the work, the hard work you're doing, and thank you for sharing about it uh, with us. It's been it's been a really really uh, beautiful conversation, and I've, I've really enjoyed getting to know you and and getting to understand a little bit more. Uh, what you're so excited about as far as it goes with uh, with dying. Yeah. Thank you so much for being here today, Blanche. 
Thank you, too. You're an awesome couple. I've enjoyed you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you for listening. Thank you for listening. We hope that this gave you a lot to think about. And, you know, one thing we were talking about that I think is could be a very fruitful thing to do next is, you know, we're talking about how we should talk about death. And you made the point of, like, usually we kind of appeal to authority in these uh-huh. things. And I think a very simple step we could all take from this conversation is just to have this conversation with people because it's really in community mm-hmm. with friends, loved ones, family. That's the place we should be talking about death for sure and definitely also you know later on with with the people involved in helping us bring that to fruition but most importantly with our with our family and loved ones and yeah. that seems to be the place we're missing it so i challenge you faithful listener that is still here mm-hmm. <laughs> i don't know why sometimes i just like does anyone make it fan yeah i think it was- <laughs> I challenge you to go um, maybe provoke this, start instigate a conversation around death. Yeah, and if you and if you want great starting points, again, check out the show notes at thefaroutpodcast.com. Deathoverdinner.com is a, a website that is built to help you schedule these kind of conversations, mm. and we'll have that link in the show notes. Yeah, well, we hope you enjoy talking about death as much as we did today. It was awesome. It was. As always, if you're looking to support the podcast, there are three ways you can do this. The first one is you can share it with a friend or share it on Instagram. Tag us at The Far Out Couple. The second one is you can leave us a review on iTunes. We will read your review on a future episode of the podcast. And it really helps because iTunes has an algorithm and the algorithm is its own entity who wants to show up the podcast. We have to feed it reviews. And we have to feed it reviews for us to show up when people look for us. So if you want to help, help this podcast, yeah, it's actually really helpful, way more than you think. So that's two. And then the third one... If you'd like to financially support this podcast, we have a Patreon page mm-hmm. over at patreon.com slash the far out couple. I was going to let him figure out if he knew our, own, our Patreon <laughs> well, page. I do know it. We have a wonderful tribe that helps us produce this podcast every week. And you and can join. a lot of resources. We create a lot of companion content with these, with these episodes. And you can get all of that for as little as $3 a month. And you can also support us for more if you want. Yes. <laughs> all right. That's it for today. We'll see you next week. Toodles. Toodles. Toodles.